part of this is that we want to model what it means to be healthy spiritual family. So in a healthy family, you can ask questions and ask why is that the way that it is? Why do we do things this way? Why is that important? And it's perfectly fine. And that's the sort of family that we want to be. Sadly, we know there are lots and lots of stories of what happens in groups where people are not allowed to ask questions. It generally ends very, very badly. And so we want to model what it looks like to be a community where it's safe for you to ask any questions at any time about anything. Uh, But at regular intervals, we want to be able to respond to some of those questions together. And it's important to recognise that this journey of following Jesus is one where we talk about faith, and the word faith means trust, and those words both by definition mean we don't have everything sorted out. There are questions that we're still working through. There's things that we don't understand and that we don't know. And any of us who've been following Jesus for a little while know that, honestly, the more you find out about Jesus, the more you know you don't know and the more questions that you end up having, which is perfectly fine as well. And so if you are regularly reading the Bible, if you're regularly coming along and processing the things that we're talking about in our gatherings, if you are living in the world that we're living in, we would assume that you've probably got some questions about what it means to follow Jesus authentically, and so our hope is to be able to respond to them on a regular basis. So I am very, very pleased to say that we have three times the number of questions that we could possibly respond to today, so thank you. You've done a really, really amazing job. We were a bit concerned about a week and a half ago we had one question, so we are like, I don't know how this is going to go, but last week in particular, lots of great questions came in, uh, and as recently as yesterday, more great questions came in, so thank you for that. Any questions that we don't get to today, we will come back to them. So if we don't get to your question today, and it's a burning question that you really want an answer for or a response to, then come and chat with us afterwards. We're happy to talk to you about it. And if we do respond to one of your questions today and you don't feel like the response is satisfactory, that's okay. Come and have a chat with us, and we'd love to unpack that a little bit more with you. One last thing before we get into it is that my number is going to be up on the screen the whole way through because I know when you sit in this and questions start milling, it's like, oh, I've got some questions. So at any point, pull out your phone and send more questions. My phone's over there. It's not going to bother me. It's totally fine. So if you think of any questions during this time, send them through and we'll keep them for next time as well. So that's enough intro. I'm going to invite Mark and Caitlin to come up because they're going to help me uh, respond. Yes. Good. Uh, so, I didn't want to do this on my own. I wanted to have some help, and I'm uh, really, really grateful that these two agreed to do that. For Caitlin, this is the first time her in this role. Caitlin, as many of you know, has done many upfront things with us, but this is her first time, so thank you for being willing to jump in and to respond to some questions with us. So, first question. There we go. Uh, What are your plans for celebrating communion on a Sunday morning? So uh, this is a great question, because especially over the last couple of years, it's been a bit tricky for us to have communion at different times with COVID, and then just with the logistics and challenges that have been around the place. So our plan is that we will get back into the habit of having communion about once a month. And I'm very deliberate about saying about once a month. We're not going to uh, say it's on the first Sunday of the month or it's on the last Sunday of the month, but about every month or so we're going to have it. And the reason why we want to have some flexibility around that is to be able to say that if we're doing a and r Sunday, we're going to have communion today. We'll talk about why a bit later on. Uh, but if it fits with starting a series, if it fits with ending a series, uh, if Easter is in the middle of the month, then we want to be able to uh, have communion as a part of that. So we're not saying we're going to do it on X week of the month, but every month or so, that's our plan, is to uh, have communion. All right, next question. 
does the Bible or do Christian people frown on people who are on the autism spectrum or does it depend on the person? So Caitlin is going to respond to this one. Yeah, I'm going to take this question. Um, so I think the Bible is a little bit light on autism exactly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to open it up more to um, what the Bible says about disability um, and how people with disability should be included. Is this working right? It is. Cutting out a little bit. We'll just swap over. How about that? That's much better. All right. So um, the short answer to this is unequivocally no. Uh, the Bible, um, which is God's word, um, does not look down on people with a disability. Um, I also want to note as well that disability is not a curse and it's not the result of sin. It's also not karma. So we've got that here from John chapter 9. Uh, so as Jesus went along, he saw a man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. So I wanted to read that to you so that it's not just opinion and you can see it really is in the Bible. Um, we also see so many stories in the Bible of how God has chosen to um, speak through people with disability and also to minister to everyone through people with disability. So I'm going to share a few more of the examples that I've got here. So we've got Luke chapter 8, the woman with uncontrolled bleeding um, who was outcast from society, um, who crept up on Jesus to touch his cloak. Uh, his disciples, you know, were like, what are you doing? You can't do that. And Jesus said... Um, uh, well, he, called, he singled her out for her faith. Um, that's one example. Uh, another example, we've got Luke chapter 5, and the man with leprosy. Um, the law forbade anyone to touch him, uh, but Jesus touched him and declared him clean. Uh, another story, which I wasn't actually all that familiar with, is from Exodus chapter 4, and it's about Moses. Um, so I'm going to read you something here, which I only kind of realised for the first time as I was preparing for this. So from Exodus 4... Um, Moses was pleading with the Lord, Oh Lord, I'm not good with words. I never have been and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Um, so we don't know whether Moses, you know, was really anxious and didn't want to speak in front of people or whether he had a speech impediment. Um, but God um, supported Moses through this and actually gave him Aaron, his brother, as a spokesperson. Um, so I think these are three really good examples um, in the Bible where um, God is speaking and ministering to people through people with disability. Um, and I think as well, Paul's got some really helpful things to say about being part of the body of Christ um, with the disability. Um, something from one of his letters to the church. He's got a few of these references um, but he says to um, the church, he says, um, you did me no wrong. And as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. So I think that's just one example of the way that uh, the church has embraced um, Paul. Um, again, we don't know exactly what... Um, what his illness was, um, but we know it was ongoing and we know that um, he talks about it as a thorn in his side, as something um, that, yeah, is really challenging. Um, so I hope that by bringing out some of these stories, you can see that as an encouragement, if that's something that you are struggling with. Um, 
But also, uh, if that's not something that you feel is directly applicable to your life, if you don't live with a disability, um, God is also really clear about what we are supposed to do as well. So I'm going to read from um, Luke chapter 14. Um, This is the parable of the banquet, a really beautiful story. So Jesus turned to his host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbours, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So remember as well that we're all members of the body of Christ. Um, uh, I'm going to read you one more thing from Ephesians, and it's the last time I'll quote the Bible for you. Um, It says, uh, Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body in the church. So he makes the whole body fit together perfectly, and that is each and every one of us. Uh, Every part does its own special work, It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So I think that's a really, really strong reminder that um, our church needs to be a place for people with disability um, to be um, serving according to their gifts. Um, Just as we are called to serve each other, the church and our community, people with disability are called to serve each other, our church and the community. Um, And that's something that I really hope that our church can be. Um, And it's a way for us to move beyond just inclusion to belonging, because that's what we have um, through the body of Christ. Um, And if you don't mind, I'd love one quick little story about how this makes a difference. Um, So some of you might know, um, my sister Emily, she's older than me, um, she has Down syndrome and schizophrenia. Um, And we've grown up in church our whole life, um, but I couldn't see what the point of Um, Jesus and God was, uh, in part by the way that she was treated by people um, who professed faith. So I um, found my own faith at 18 after I left um, my hometown and found a new church community. Um, So that had a profound impact on my understanding of who God was because I just thought, if if this is God, I don't know if I could follow him. Um, And my sister felt that too. She never wanted to go to church. Um, But the greatest blessing has happened and answered a prayer. Um, She has found a church community where she now goes, can I come to church today? Mm -hmm. Um, Which she serves according to her own gifts. She loves talking to people, so she'll do anything to talk to people. Um, She takes communion now for the first time and it took her, you know, 28 years. Um, But that's now something that she feels comfortable doing. So it's all possible within our church community, and it's definitely what we're called to do. So great. Thanks, Caitlin. All right. Next one. How do I speak about faith to those who are staunch atheists? Not just normal atheists. Right. The staunch staunch ones. ones. Normal atheists we're good with, but staunch. Yeah, yeah. I was actually reflecting on this only just this morning as I sat in the chair thinking about this question again. Um... The, the idea that staunch atheists is actually quite a new thing historically as well. Uh, this is only something that we've had to kind of think about as a faith community in the last hundred or a couple of hundred years. Before then, um, it was 
an atheist wasn't really a real thing. You know, everyone believed in something. Um, everyone believed in some kind of transcendent power, not necessarily the God of the Bible, uh, but certainly they believed in something. So it's a new thing historically for us to be able to think about how do we actually share our faith in the context of someone that doesn't believe in anything at all. Um, and there's a couple of things here, I think, that are probably important to consider. And one of, those, one of those verses that often gets quoted in terms of the way that we go about doing evangelism and mission with other people um, comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, and that is to always have an answer for the hope that we have. And as I reflected on that again this week, it reminded me, one, that 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 verse kind of assumes that we're living a life that evokes questions. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Uh, so this is designed that people might ask us questions about the way that we live. Um, and so there's this, I think behind that, there's this idea that one of the ways in which we communicate our faith to anyone really is by living a questionable life, by living our lives in a distinctive way that actually invites those questions from those around us. Because if we don't look any different, if we're not distinctive in the way that we think or the way that we make decisions or the way that we use our money or however it may be, then why would anyone ask us any questions in the first place? So there's that idea, I think, trying to live a life of distinction so that that might invite some questions. Um, but also this idea that we are ready to provide an answer for that as well. Um, and I think crucial here is that we, the relationships are, are, are super crucial here. But we have a tendency, I think sometimes, if I think negatively about Christians um, in this space sometimes, we've got a tendency to give all the answers before we know what the questions actually are. A bit like Nate you know, giving the answer to the question that no one actually asked this morning um, before about kids stuff. But we have a tendency to do the same thing. We can provide, we can just talk and talk and talk and provide all the answers without actually stopping to think about the questions that people might have, the longings that they have in life, their doubts and their fears, getting to know them as people and understand you know, what, what is their vision of life and the good life and all of those kinds of things that allows us then to speak into that. And it's actually as we develop those relationships and build those relationships that we actually build the kind of respect that we need to speak to people about the hope that we have as Christians. Uh, and so that is really important. Relationships are important. How do we understand their longings so that we then might be able to communicate to people how is that fulfilled in the person of Jesus? How are those questions and those longings, all those doubts and those fears, how are they addressed uh, by the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus? Um, that's a great place to start, I think, uh, for everyone. And I, I think, too, thinking about kind of staunch atheists, that we don't all have to be, you know, John Lennox. We don't have to have a mathematics degree from Oxford or, or be a brilliant scientist to be able to speak to people about faith. I mean, by all means, if the people that you're talking to have got deep philosophical or scientific questions, there are people and resources out there that can help with that. You don't have to do it all on your own. Um, but what we can do, every single one of us have got the capacity to tell stories and to share experiences, uh, to love other people, to be kind, to let our lives be an ornament to the gospel like Titus talks about in the New Testament. Titus kind of gives this what looks like a big list of rules about, about the way that we're supposed to live. But the idea is not just to follow rules. It is about living lives that are an ornament to the gospel, uh, that people might be drawn to the gospel through our lives. And that's something crucial that we can all do.
And something that um, I was reminded of or I was taught many years ago now and and it's stuck in my head when it comes to evangelism and mission is that we have this vision uh, from Jesus about the disciples and by extension us of being fishers of men, fishers of people in the way that we go out and share our faith uh, with people. And often when we think about fishing, I, well, I do, I think about, I hate fishing, by the way, but when I think about, when I'm forced to think about fishing, I think about myself as an individual, me with a fishing rod trying to catch that fish out there. It's the pressure's on me. Uh, whereas in reality, if you think about fishing in the first century where Jesus is talking about this, and what did they fish with? They fished with nets, they didn't fish with rods. And this is a a really important analogy for us as a church community in the way that we do evangelism and mission. We don't just go out as individuals. We do this as a community. And actually, the nets kind of represent us as a community. And this has always been really important for me, I think, because evangelism and mission is not just an individual's responsibility. It's a collective responsibility. And so if you have got interaction with a staunch atheist during the week uh, and you don't feel equipped to answer all their questions because maybe you don't know enough or you're too nervous to kind of talk about that kind of stuff, don't get down on yourself. That's okay because you're part of a community. Maybe you need to um, introduce them to someone else, bring them to, to church and well, maybe not bring them to church, but introduce them uh, to someone within the community that just oozes the gospel, that talks about it naturally. There's ways and means of doing that that take the pressure off you as an individual as well. So it's a collective responsibility. And just a couple of, two things to finish as well. Um, One is that everyone has a worldview, even a staunch atheist. They still have a worldview. They still live their lives according to a certain story about who they are and the way the world works. And what what does the future look like? Even the staunchest of atheists have got a story. Uh, And so it's really important that we find common ground with that, that understand, you know, where do we relate? Where can we actually start to communicate the gospel within the context of their worldview, the story that they live out of? And last but not least... Just be a friend for the long haul. This is really crucial as well because sometimes I think at our worst, we can feel like, well, we've given them enough time. They're not coming around. Uh, you know, they're not going to come to church anytime soon. They don't want to take on board what I believe and therefore I'll just move on to someone else. It's like the worst thing we can possibly do. Uh, these things take time. Uh, it's not all our responsibility. This is actually the work of God, uh, not our own. And so we just need to be friends for the long haul and walk with people and understand them, love them, be kind, and look for opportunities to share the gospel. Great. Thank you, Mark. Very good. All right. Why is church starting too early the last couple of weeks? So uh, this is a great question that uh, requires some context. So uh, as a church family, we're not necessarily the most timely people who start on time, uh, week after week after week. But I will say this, this is the one thing that came up in every single conversation I had with people leading up to me starting at Richmond and then having started at Richmond. Every single conversation, someone would bring up, we really do need to start starting a little bit earlier than we are. So this is not because I'm a tyrant and feel like we have to start on time with everything. This is because of your feedback. Now, this is really important. 
And the reason, and I love this, that it came up over and over again is because people said it's really awkward. Because at 10 o'clock, the only people who are here are our volunteers and you people. And that's it. And it's really, really awkward. And so we've just conditioned ourselves that it's normal to start late. And so, uh, funny story, Rachel came a couple of weeks before uh, I started. First week, I warned her, just so you know, they don't start on time, so it's fine. So she got here nice and on time, which was great. Came home. Next week, I'm certainly not leaving on time. I'm not going to get there until at least five past, probably ten past. So it took one week to condition her just start late. So the feedback has been, let's try and pull that back. Now, we're not going to be crazy and like if it's 10.01, then someone's head's going to roll. Like we have grace and so that's fine. But we've said five pass is probably the latest that we want to try and start to honour the people who do show up uh, and the people who have put in the work for us to be able to start at the time that we publicise that we start for anyone who's new. So uh, if you have any further feedback about that, feel free to come and chat more with us. Um, but yeah, that's the reason why we have pulled that back. Now, in a twist of irony, this morning, we started at 10 past. So <laughs> it is what it is. Next question. Why do we believe biblically that empowering women and Indigenous people is important? Mark. It's me again. Uh, it's a pretty massive question. Uh, and I think I'm going to stick with a bit the, the biblically bit because there's some massive kind of social and cultural issues that are going on here as well um, that I could probably spend all morning on. So I'll try and stick to the idea of what, what again, makes us distinctive. What do we believe biblically um, in terms of why we want to speak into these things and why we want to model something different than perhaps what we've seen in our world um, at times. And look, my easy answer to this question is it's like it's on the first page of the Bible. Uh, you can't go too far into the biblical story before you find this incredibly foundational idea that all people, all people are created in the image and likeness of God. Like it's such a foundational concept. It's on the first page of our story. Uh, and... This is, I, I, it's just really crucial to reflect on this again, that this is not based on gender, it's not based on ethnicity, it's not based on background. This is based on being created in God's image. And really importantly, and again, I could go on a massive tangent here, but really importantly, this stands distinct from many of the other stories that existed in the ancient Near Eastern culture when the people of God first kind of received this account of God's uh, creation. Uh, many of the other stories had different accounts of the way the world began, very different understandings of what humanity was based on their own story. The Babylonians, for example, that we read about in the Old Testament, they had their own creation story called the Enuma Elish, which is like bloody and violent and destructive and it's nationalistic and it shaped their culture. That's who they were based on their story. Uh, and so dramatically different is Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that give us a remarkably different story about the way the world began and a remarkably different version of what it means to be human. That all people not based on nationality, not based on gender, not based on anything, but being all people are created in the, in the image and likeness of God. And that's really, really crucial. So it's on the first page. That's my easy answer. Uh, but it's scattered right through the biblical story as well. And we read in Galatians chapter 3, don't we, in the New Testament, the same kind of echoes from Paul when he's talking about our community as 
a church, that there's no Jew or Greek or slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. There's a common humanity. So whether we're talking about people from uh, our Indigenous people here in Australia, whether we're talking issues of women, whether we're talking issues of people that are, that are you know, poor and powerless and marginalised in our society, we can't go too far uh, outside of this idea that we have a common humanity, we have a common image-bearing capacity. Um, but this idea, too, of justice is just, is just littered through the whole of the biblical account. Um, it is kind of one of those central themes of biblical theology. From the very start, the people of Israel are given a law in the Old Testament, and that law accounted for the poor and the marginalised and the disenfranchised within that culture and even outside their culture. That was built into the way they were supposed to live. They were supposed to be a signpost of a different way of living. Compared with the other nations around them, they were always supposed to be a different kind of people, living differently. And a massive part of that was how they treated those who were on the fringe, those who faced injustice, those who were marginalised. And you skip forward into the Old Testament prophets and they are like super hot on this, super hot. Um, we talk about, uh, you know, we know those, you know, the famous verses from Micah about, you know, doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly. Um, I actually like the, some of those verses in Amos get even more like gnarly. Uh, Amos, an 8th century prophet in the Old Testament, and he has a real crack at the people of Israel because they are, you know, coming to worship God and, and bringing their offerings and singing their songs and all that kind of stuff. But meanwhile, within their society and culture, they are marginalising the poor and the powerless, and he has had enough. Uh, and he speaks this really strong message, away with your songs and your harps and your whatevers that you're bringing. I don't want to hear that anymore. It's like, it's rubbish. But let justice roll uh, like a river. Uh, there's this idea we can't kind of divorce our worship from the doing of justice. It's been a central part of what it's mean to be God's people since the very beginning. And of course, we see this most perfectly in Jesus, don't we? We see Jesus going out of his way to spend time with those who are on the fringe. Caitlin mentioned before the, the woman that was hemorrhaging for, for 12 years, bleeding for 12 years, a classic case. Like, here's Jesus on his way to Jairus' house to raise someone from the dead. He's got a really important job to do, right? But along the way, this woman kind of just, who's at the end of herself, just grabs the end of his cloak as he walks past. Uh, and Jesus turns around to this woman, cut a long story short, and she is healed for the first time in 12 years. But it's the way that Jesus talks to her. He says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Go in shalom. This woman who's been ostracised and on the fringe of society, had no voice, has not been included in any way. Suddenly, she's one of them again. She has wholeness of relationships, not just with Jesus, but with her community. Jesus does this, this is one example. He does this time and time and time and time again to spend time with those who are on the fringe. And Luke's gospel particularly uh, has got this, you know, it's kind of the great reversal, uh, particularly around the issue of women, actually. The way that women are included in Luke's gospel is quite remarkable in the context of a first century culture in which women didn't have a voice and they weren't included. So the Bible is really strong on that, uh, right through 
to the very end of the Bible, Revelation, which gives us this beautiful picture of the future. It gives us a picture of wholeness of relationships, of, of shalom, of all injustice being uh, uh, ended and, and so on. A place of justice and mercy and love and flourishing relationships uh, for all people again. All people, not just certain nationalities, not just certain genders, not just certain positions, but all people. And the idea is, as we have that vision of what God's future looks like, we, as God's people, live that reality in our present moment. So in our community, we look and see around in our culture, where is there injustice? Uh, And if there's justice, injustice to do with gender, we need to be part of that solution. If there's injustice with our Indigenous people in Australia, we need to be part of that solution because we don't just kind of live with the past in mind. We live with God's future as a vision of what society and culture and our community is supposed to be like, and we live that in our present moment. Um, I've got lots more to say, but I reckon my time is up. It's good. Quick plug for you, next week, uh, so Melinda is in the Northern Territory this week, spending time uh, in some of our Indigenous communities partnerships uh, through Baptist Churches Northern Territory, or BUNT, as they're called, Baptist Union of the Northern Territory. Um, So when she comes back next week, next Sunday, she's going to be sharing some of those stories and some of the things that she has learnt uh, and observed this week. But it is also a primer for us to reignite the conversation around what we're doing in terms of the conversations around uh, reconciliation and uh, the voice to parliament and some of the things that are coming up around the place. So a bit of a teaser for next week for you. All right, next question. What are your thoughts about being involved with Regis Aged Care? Uh, So Regis, for those who aren't aware, is an aged care facility that's just down the road a little bit. And uh, we have had a history of being involved with Regis in the past. We had a multi-generational playgroup that was happening at Regis for a little while. Uh, Pam and Pat are still very involved with a Wednesday afternoon service that happens there uh, in partnership with a number of the other churches that are in the area um, and uh, where the residents have the ability to be able to come together and uh, spend some time worshipping Jesus together, which is really, really great. Um, And so we also, this question came up, but we also got an email from St. Anna's Residential Care, uh, which is where Lois and uh, John are. So if you're watching Lois, hi. Um, So this kind of came up in two different ways. To say, if you're interested in being involved in helping out at one of uh, local aged care facilities and being able to come in, uh, whether that is on a weekly basis or every now and again, being able to help out with the services that are happening or being able to do some other things, then there are definitely opportunities to be able to do that. So if that's something that you're interested in, guess who you have to see? Jemima, that's exactly right. So she would be very happy to hear from you. And uh, yeah, so if that's something you're interested in or passionate about, please see her. All right. Can we produce postcard-sized Richmond bingo cards that we can pass out, use as a fridge magnet, and put in neighbours' letterboxes? Now, Caitlin's going to respond to this. Are you going to give the context for this question, or do I need to set this up a little bit more? Okay, well, I'll give a bit more context for it. So I mentioned last week a little bit about Richmond Bingo. So there's something that's been around for a little while, is that we have these words and these phrases that we use a lot. And so we jokingly say there's these Richmond Bingo cards that are floating around, uh, which get used at different times to kind of catch people out when they're using too much Richmond language on any given week. And uh, so it's in the context of that last week that this question came up. 
All right. So it kind of sounds like a fun idea, right? Um, but I challenge us to think that maybe our Richmond bingo words make sense to us because of our context. They make sense to us because of our community and we know them here. Um, so I kind of think maybe there might be a bit of a risk that without that context, if we were to share our Richmond bingo outside of Richmond, people might kind of see us as a bit of a club, something that they can't be a part of or come along to or visit unless they know what we're talking about um, before they come. Um, and that doesn't seem like the most inviting thing that we could do. Um, but I would say that there's other things that we can do um, to support us to speak to our neighbours um, or just to, you know, have something at home um, as a symbol of our membership to this community. Um, so I think there's a lot of value in revisiting what our Richmond values are, um, being really clear about who we are, what we value, what we stand for, what brings us together. Um, so I'd love to see us look at that. And I think, yeah, Nate is pretty clean on that too. So that's always a good sign. Um, and there might be a really great way for us to make a postcard or a fridge magnet with our Richmond values um, in a way that's really accessible, that shows to um, our neighbours, to anyone that we invite into our homes, um, yeah, that shows who we are, what we stand for, um, and what we think the value of meeting together in this community is. Um, but we're going to think more about this, so if you have feedback, um, we'd love to hear it um, just expressed a view. Uh, you don't have to share it either. That's right. And if you have any great ideas or you want to design something, then please do and then send it through to us and who knows what we'll do with that. And a uh, quick plug again for what Dave mentioned earlier, that if you're not sure about our values or want to hear a bit more about Richmond bingo language, you can come along to our intro to Richmond lunch in a few weeks' time and we'll unpack it some more. So that's uh, all the questions that we're going to tackle today because we don't want to be here all day, especially given how glorious it is outside. So we hope that's been helpful. As I said, if any of those questions were your questions and uh, you feel like you want a bit more unpacking of that or you disagree with us, then please come and chat a little bit more. And as I also said, if we didn't get to your question today and that's kind of burning you up and you need an answer in the next month or two, uh, then please come and chat with us. We're very happy to do that as well. So I might pray, and uh, then we're going to transition across to communion. Jesus, thank you that uh, this is a safe space for us to be able to ask questions and for us to be able to respond to questions. And uh, we recognise that we aren't uh, people who have all of the answers to every question that's been asked, uh, but we thank you that you've given us enough to be able to be starting points for us to launch out from. And so we thank you for uh, the responses that we've been able to work through today, and we pray that they've been helpful, particularly for the people who ask the questions, but also for others of us who might be wrestling with the same things. Uh, and we pray that as we move forward, that you would continue to give us confidence uh, that following you is not about having all the answers, that's about meeting you where we're at and being able to journey together and discovering more as we move forward. In your name we pray. Amen.